0: Thank you for tuning in to the Herbert Smith Freehills Asia-Pacific Competition Law Podcast, Unbundling Competition. My name's Adelaide Luke and I'm a partner in the competition regulation and trade team here in Hong Kong. With me today is Joel Rubin, a senior associate in our competition team in Tokyo. Hi Joel.
1: Hi Adelaide and hello to our listeners.
0: This is the first installment of our new series on new directions in competition law. Throughout this series we're going to cover some of the new and interesting areas into which competition law has expanded in recent years, beyond the more traditional concerns around things like price competition and typical forms of cartel conduct. Today we wanted to look a little more closely at the competition compliance in the employment context. So just to set the scene, over the past several years there have been increasing calls by some in the competition law community. For a more expansive approach to competition law, so beyond those traditional consumer welfare standard, you know, one that focuses on factors of competition like price and quality for consumers, into an area that uses competition law to progress broader socioeconomic issues impacting other stakeholders, things like wages that companies pay their employees or the impact that they have on the environment. And this is sometimes referred to as hipster antitrust, particularly in the US. At least as far as employment-related matters are concerned, there has definitely been an uptick in enforcement. Competition authorities have initiated at least 15 new investigations over the past two years alone, compared with a total of 24 cases between 2010 and 2019. While the focus of these enforcement activities has been the US and Europe, we have seen enforcement in Latin America as well as here in Asia. The relationship between competition law and labour markets has also been picked up by the OECD in a recent report. But Joel, let's start with the basics. What does competition law have to do with employment law and why should competition authorities care about it?
1: Thanks, Adelaide. So competition authorities recognise that there are markets for labour just in the same way that there are markets for goods and services that are provided to customers. Uh, So on the one hand, uh, properly functioning labour markets benefit employees because the uh, employees can achieve better wages and and other working conditions. Um, This is sort of an inverse of the way we normally look at markets, where the focus is on making sure that customers paying money for goods and services don't pay too much, whereas in labour markets, the focus is instead on the side that is getting paid. Uh, the OECD report that you referred to a moment ago pays particular attention to monopsony uh, power by employers. So, competition law is normally concerned with market monopolies, which is where the supplier has market power. Monopsony, on the other hand, refers to a situation where the purchaser has market power, which can then be used to the disadvantage of suppliers. Monopsony focused competition concerns are a bit more rare, but they do arise, particularly recently in the context of digital markets. And the increased focus on this area of enforcement is in large part a a result of disruptions to labour markets following COVID-19. At the same time as there is a focus on uh, benefits to employees, it's also recognised that properly functioning labour markets can benefit consumers. Uh, in particular because employees that are properly remunerated are likely to be more motivated, more efficient and productive, uh, all of which can lead to improved quality of goods and services. So, Adelaide, I understand that the United States has been the leader in terms of enforcement in this area. What have been some of the major developments there?
0: Thanks, Joel. More recent enforcement activities in the US can be linked to a short set of compliance guidelines that were issued by the DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission in October 2016. The guidelines were aimed at HR professionals involved in recruitment and remuneration decisions for their firms and summarised the authorities' past enforcement practice in relation to these labour markets. The guidelines highlighted several potentially problematic practices. First, agreements with other employers not to recruit one another's employees. And these are usually referred to as no no poach or no hire agreements. Um, And they're more common in sectors that rely on really highly skilled workers. The second practice is agreements with other employers not to compete on terms of compensation. So basically wage fixing agreements. And thirdly, sharing commercially sensitive information with competitors. These 2016 guidelines were also significant in that they explicitly stated an intention to treat no poach and wage fixing agreements as criminal infringements. And this led to the first criminal prosecutions against no poach agreements in Texas and Colorado last year, although the defendants were ultimately acquitted in both cases. So although the DOJ and the FTC have already been really active, it's worth noting that President Biden's comprehensive executive order on competition issued in July 2021 explicitly called on the agencies to step up their enforcement activities in labour markets. The executive order made reference not only to agreements between employers, like no-poach agreements, but also restrictive agreements between employers and employees, and in particular non compete provisions that prevent employees from moving to an employer's competitor after terminating their employment. So going forward, you know, we may yet see more enforcement in this area, including criminal prosecutions against employers. I mean, it remains to be seen what impact the so-called great resignation will have on the enforcement priorities of these agencies.
1: And what about on the other side of the Atlantic? Is labour market enforcement an area where we're seeing convergence or divergence with European enforcement priorities?
0: Look, I think there's been an increasing scrutiny of no-poach and wage-fixing agreements in Europe too, uh, particularly at the member state level. The EU Competition Commissioner, Marguerite Vestager delivered a speech last year where she highlighted no-poach agreements as a non-traditional area of cartel conduct, where the European Commission would need to become more active. She linked these agreements with dampening innovation, noting that in sectors that rely on specialised technical knowledge, restricting the free movement of employees could prevent companies from improving their offerings or moving into new product areas. Interestingly, several agreements that have come under scrutiny by the European Commission and the European Member state authorities have not been bilateral agreements between employers, but agreements or actions through industry associations. I mean, one other point to note is that no poach agreements are actually permitted under European competition law in certain limited contexts. So the EU ancillary restraints notice provides an exemption for restrictions that are directly related and necessary to the implementation of a transaction. For example in the form of a non-solicitation provision under SPA. In these circumstances, the Commission and the member state authorities accept that that some degree of restriction is necessary to ensure that a purchaser can maintain the value of its investment. But those restrictions have to be proportionate uh, and and limited in scope. Recent European cases have looked at whether these non-solicitation provisions are sufficiently connected to the transactions to benefit from the exemption outside the EU we've also seen increasing interest in competition issues in labor markets in the UK and in Turkey the UK for example has been consulting in relation to non-compete clauses in employment contracts including whether to make these clauses unenforceable altogether Joel spinning to to Asia you're based in japan what what's the position there
1: yeah thanks very much adelaide uh, I, I think uh, we've there's, been less in the way of enforcement per se in Japan, but competition in labour markets is definitely something that is explicitly on the JFTC's radar. Uh, So in 2018, there was a study group set up by the JFTC, uh, and they issued a report on human resources and competition policy. Uh, In addition to no poach and wage fixing agreements, um, that report also contained a chapter on agreements between employers and employees, uh, and in particular, Uh, provisions in employment contracts that can constitute so-called unfair trade practices. Um, Now, unfair trade practices is a concept that is relatively unique to Japan and a few other jurisdictions in Asia. Uh, I think we've mentioned this on previous podcasts. Um, This concept basically prohibits certain types of conduct that generally fall within the scope of abuse of dominance in in other jurisdictions, uh, but doesn't necessarily require market dominance. Um, And the report that the JFTC issued stated that non-compete provisions, uh, for example, as you've just said, uh, may constitute unfair trade practices in certain circumstances, for example. Um, The scope to penalise certain exploitative types of arrangements between employers and employees is, is therefore potentially wider in Japan as a consequence of this concept of unfair trade practices. Um, After issuing its report, the JFTC explicitly called on sports organisations not to impose restrictions on athletes from transferring between teams. Um, And it subsequently then opened an investigation into the National Professional Baseball Association uh, in 2020. And it targeted an agreement between the top baseball teams in Japan not to sign players who rejected draft offers from Uh, one or other of the teams in order to play overseas. Um, The JFTC later dropped its investigation after the teams agreed to rescind the agreement. So there wasn't uh, ultimately a a decision that was passed in that case. Uh, I understand that the JFTC has also been talking with other organizations, uh, including entertainment agencies, for example, uh, to push for fairer agreements for entertainers. How about in Hong Kong, Adelaide?
0: Thanks, Joel. As in Japan, we know that labor markets are an area of concern for the Hong Kong Competition Commission. In 2018, it published an advisory bulletin um, specifically focused on labor markets, and that was designed to alert businesses of competition law risks arising from these employment practices. Um, And that advisory bulletin included some Q&A around common scenarios We haven't yet seen such detailed guidance as you've had in Japan or any other enforcement action announced. Joel, clearly restrictive practices between employers and between employers and employees are an area of focus for competition authorities at the moment, and I think they're likely to continue for some time. What should companies and their HR professionals bear in mind when setting employment terms?
1: Okay, well, first... I would say, exercise extreme caution in agreeing to non-solicitation provisions. Uh, These commonly arise, for example, in joint venture agreements or share or asset transfer agreements. Um, And as you said before, there may be circumstances where non-solicitation provisions are acceptable, uh, but they have to be properly scoped. Second, don't agree with other employers on wages or other terms of employment. And this isn't just a question of driving wages down. So agreeing on uniform wage increases, for example, could still result in setting ceilings on pay uh, and therefore preventing some employers from offering more to attract talented staff. So potentially any type of agreement on wages uh, or other terms of of employment uh, are unacceptable. Third, be particularly cautious about information exchange. There's an obvious temptation to ask competitors how much they're, in play, if they're paying employees uh, and what sort of pension arrangements they have in place and so forth. Um, however, these can be a form of competitively sensitive information, just as much as information about prices, capacity or business strategy, for example. And the the recent European cases show that particular caution should be exercised in trade association meetings. Uh, It may be legitimate for trade association members to agree on some sort of employment conditions, for example, uh, setting certain minimum standards of training uh, or experience for employees. Um, This may be justifiable from a safety or a technical perspective. Um, However, agreements not to employ certain types of employees, uh, as we've seen in Japan, could be seen as a type of collective boycott. Uh, Finally, in agreements with employees, also make sure that you understand the rules that are in place for non-compete provisions, uh, particularly where these could be subject to change, as in the UK.
0: Great, thank you so much, Joel. Look, I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you everyone again for tuning in and thank you so much, Joel, for joining me today. If you found this podcast interesting or useful, please do check out our other installments of Unbundling Competition. And if you have any thoughts, comments or questions, please don't hesitate to get in contact with us. Thank you.